This episode is brought to you by the flooded basements all across Detroit. We hope you get well soon. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Lost Souls of Detroit. I'm Jameson Draper, your host, with Max Miller, my co-host. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the most well-known figures in all of Detroit history. But first, what the hell are we drinking? Today, we're drinking Detroit City Distillery Butcher's Cut Bourbon Whiskey. That sounds like it'll put some hair on my chest. Yeah. Butcher's Cut? Butcher's Cut, yeah. So it's 116 proof, so 58% alcohol. So we're going to have to take this slow. We're going to drink this one on ice. Uh, but yeah, it's called Butcher's Cut. So there's a whole story on the back, and the first sentence is, my grandfather lost his finger making a whiskey barrel. As as one is wont to yeah, do. Yeah, you know, this is just <laughs> what happens. It says, he traded his motorcycle to bootleggers for a rifle. And after World War II, he began his career as a butcher in Detroit's Eastern Market next to the slaughterhouse that I transformed into our distillery. Some subtle flex there. To honor his life and legacy, I created Butcher's Cut Bourbon using the finest cuts of corn, rye, and roasted barley. The result is a bourbon that is timeless and true with exceptional character, just like the man that inspired it. So what you're saying is you're trying to kill me with this? Pretty much, yep. Okay. All right, well, let's, it'll let's, be good. Let's pour it. Yep. Oh, yeah. Best part. All right. Cheers. Cheers. It's pretty good. It is pretty good. It is pretty good. It's harsh. It's strong. Yeah. But uh, I don't know what that aftertaste is, but it's it's like a harsh bourbon flavor. But it's yeah, really nice. I think once it opens up, it's actually going to be really easy yeah. drinking. Yeah. I think once we cool it down a little bit and... Dilute it so that we don't die. But anyway, while while the hair is growing on my chest um, exponentially quicker than it was just a few seconds ago, do you know who we're talking about today? I'm gonna guess Barry. Barry Gordy. That's ah. who. Yeah, we've uh, we've done a couple famous people, but um, Barry Gordy man is uh, one of the most famous Detroit figures of all time. And uh, we've done a lot of shitty ass people. So I'd really want to do somebody that was a good person, or at least we think is it, we don't know a lot about his personally, but we know that he did a lot of good, very influential, and a cultural touchstone of the city in, in many different ways. Barry Gordy was born on November 28, 1929 in Detroit. His family was actually from the South, though, in Georgia, and his grandfather, Barry Gordy I, Barry Gordy, our main character, was Barry Gordy III. So Barry Gordy I, his grandfather, was actually the illegitimate son of a white plantation owner um, and a slave. So his paternal half-brother, the first Barry Gordy, his paternal half-brother, so the plantation owner's legitimate son, his name was James Jackson Gordy, and he gave birth to a daughter, Lillian Gordy, later known as Lillian Gordy Carter. And if you recognize that name, it's because Lillian Gordy Carter is the mother of U.S. President Jimmy Carter. So in some weird way, Barry Gordy and Jimmy Carter were cousins, half-cousins? Or, or like second cousins or something. They're blood relatives, though, and not really that distant, Crazy. honestly. And Crazy. from the same, they had the same great-grandfather. So second wow. cousins, I think. But yeah, so moving on, Barry Gordy II, our main character's father, moved his family from the Jim Crow South in 1922 and came to Detroit. He wanted to escape the presence of the ever-growing Ku Klux Klan and, and Jim Crow laws in the South in Washington County, Georgia, this little tiny town where they lived. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're wondering what type of place Washington County was and why Barry Gordy's father was so desperate to get out of there before he had his children, an example I can give you is that they furnished more Confederate soldiers than any other county in Georgia during the Civil War. I did not know that, but that is a crazy tidbit. 
the thing is, the thing is, is that, you know, I mean, I, I feel like any discerning person would probably know that the South was racist and not a great person for place for a black person to be uh, in the, you know, Jim Crow days. But it's interesting to get a little bit of an insight on the exact little town because you never know what type of place it is. But yeah, Barry Gordy II uh, was part of a, a hardworking uh, family, uh, and he carried that on to his own family when he moved to Detroit. And he moved to Detroit, opened and ran many different businesses, and his older two sons were happy to work for the various businesses. And his mom was an executive at an insurance company after leaving her job as a school teacher down south. And because his dad was a hustler, always working, uh, the Gordy family was really, they were fine through the Great Depression in the 1930s, which was a hugely devastating factor for most families at that time. But Barry, on the other hand, was actually not really into that entrepreneurial spirit just yet. Uh, he was more into boxing, actually, which was the biggest sport, really, at that time in Detroit. And when he was eight years old, he watched Joe Lewis fight a famous boxer named Max Schmeling. Max Schmeling was a German man who actually fought under the Nazi flag. And in a, in a later time, Barry Gordy said, quote, Joe Lewis was a hero of all people and he was black like me, unquote. And I think that had a major impact on him. His parents cried and celebrated the win as a holiday. And it really made Barry want to actually become a boxer. Yeah. I mean, think about the early 1930s, a German boxer fighting under the Nazi flag being beat by a black American boxer was, I mean, I, I can't imagine the impact that had. Well, it's interesting because I've heard of the Lewis Schmeling fight. I've heard of it in, in passing, but you know what you hear all about from the 1930s, like Jesse Owens at the Olympics fighting against what? Nazis, mm -hmm. basically. And that's yep. what he did. You know, it was, it was in Germany. It was in Germany, correct? Can't remember, but either way. Was that Berlin? It may have been. I either think so. either way, it was a big like anti-Nazi. It was a big thing for a, a, a young black athlete to do. And this is basically in a different arena, in a different setting, different context, mm -hmm. but the same thing. A better so, part is that yeah, this this fight that uh, Barry Gordy was referring to, this was the second fight between Lewis and Schmeling. The first one, Joe Lewis lost, so it was even more of a celebration to see him win. And I think that that was a huge factor into why uh, Barry Gordy himself decided to get into boxing. Yeah, I mean, and there's. Can't be a lot of better things uh, to spend your money on than watching somebody punch a Nazi. Oh, it's great. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I would do it. Uh, but yeah, so he wanted to become a boxer so bad that he actually did. <laughs> he uh, dropped out of high school to become a professional boxer in 1946, which was, at this point, the first of his many lives. His record as a featherweight boxer was 12-3-2, serving five knockouts and not being knocked out a single time. Well, you know, that's not spectacular overall, but definitely worth noting, cool part of his life. Yeah, I mean, you know, somebody that's an American sports fan might look at a 12-3-2 record and be like, damn, he was good. But if you look at any boxer that's it's like contending a for a title, they don't lose. Yeah, like they don't Mayweather's lose. record? Right. What is it? One loss with freaking Logan Paul? No, that, that, wasn't, that didn't count. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so he was a boxer, Barry Gordy, until he was actually drafted into the Army to serve the Korean War in 1951. After the war, he returned to Detroit, just like my grandfather, who was in the Korean War. They probably were best friends, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. They must have been. Since they both went to the Korean War and lived in Detroit, I mean... Probably the only there two. There can't be... Probably the only <laughs> two. But he returned to Detroit, and he married his girlfriend, Thelma Louise Coleman in Toledo, which is one of his three wives, his first one. Um, why did he go to Ohio to get married to his wife? I have no idea. Why would you go to Ohio? I, I don't know. And it was Toledo. It's not like he went... I mean, not that there's a lot of destinations in Ohio, but I will say there are some all right park, know, national parks. Things about Finley. Hocking Hills. Finley is Flag City. If you flag like flags city. and Marathon Oil, um, it's, it's a good place. Um, and Cuyahoga. 
Uh, Falls is a national that. park. Oh, sweet. And it's about 45 minutes south. So, oh my God, this is not a pro-Ohio podcast. I'm just saying there's some good things about it that people might not. Anyways, never mind. Um, with a little bit of his father's entrepreneurial spirit starting to seep inside him, uh, Barry Gordy attempted to open his own record store, a place called 3D Records, located right in what is today Midtown in Detroit. For those of you that live here, um, it's right by the DIA. Where, where the DIA is now is where this 3D record shop was. It was on St. Antoine Street. Um, and he said uh, the, the record store was a failure. And when talking about it, Barry Gordy said, quote, I was heavily into jazz, so I opened this jazz record store, but people in Detroit came asking for the blues. I tried to educate these people because jazz was hip. You should not be listening to this other stuff. But I guess they weren't interested. He said cats coming to the shop here were factory workers looking for some muddy waters trying to help their woes. They were not interested in jazz. What's funny is that if you think about it, a jazz record shop in Midtown Detroit right now would probably thrive. Yeah, it really yeah. would. Because it's not cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Back then it didn't thrive because it was Use cool. Maybe in a way hipster. it's always been the same. But Detroit yeah. Detroit has always been the embodiment of, you know, off the beaten path, right? When the world was listening to jazz, we were listening to blues. When the world was making the cookie cutter pop music, we were also making cookie cutter pop music, but it was it was black pop. You know, it was mm-hmm. always going a little bit against the grain. So while this is interesting, it doesn't surprise me. And if you listen to old, I don't really listen to old jazz very often, except for like the absolute great. So I don't know. But if you listen to old blues, which I've listened to, I mean, a good amount of in my life, they reference Detroit shit a lot. Randomly. Baker's Keyboard Lounge, mm-hmm. Apex Bar, mm-hmm. like all these random places. You'll be like, oh my God, is that John Lee Hooker talking <laughs> about Brush Street? You know, like something like that. So it, it makes sense that people are really into uh, the blues. But nonetheless, Barry Gordy was into jazz and his company failed. And then he decided, you know, I'm just going to get a day job at a factory like a majority of Detroit. And his first job was actually at the all-famous River Rouge Ford plant, um, which only lasted one day after he got asked for a transfer uh, because the work conditions were reportedly strenuous. And they said, get the hell out of here. He was there for one day. Then they said, get the hell out of here. And he went to another plant. He went to the Lincoln Mercury plant in Wayne, Michigan where his job was simple, and, and his, in order to find some time to write music, which he was getting more and more interested in, while he was on the clock, he'd actually go skip ahead on the famous assembly line so that he could do his part on the cars, which was putting chrome in the interiors, so he didn't have to wait until the line got to him. He'd go up, do his part so he could get done early, and then write his own music. And some of his best early work actually was written on company time at, at Lincoln Mercury plant, which, Pretty you know, eat the rich, man. Yep. <laughs> So, um, and if you actually, this is interesting because I was doing some research and I saw this music video of Martha Reeves and the Vandellas from Motown from the, I think it was 1965. They had a song, um, and they did a, like a little somewhat of a promo music video for it. And it was all in a, like a Mustang being built at the River Rouge oh, plant, cool. which is like awesome. I've never seen that before, that's pretty cool. but it definitely, you can't say necessarily his job influenced him because everybody knows about the assembly line, but you know that those life experiences definitely influenced the way he looked at his artists and their aesthetic and what they meant. So I think it's very interesting that there was like an assembly line, uh, they were singing in front of, which uh, well, we, we, uh, we'll post a clip of the video on our Instagram. So if you, if you go look at our Instagram, you'll be able to find it. But when he had enough of the automotive job, Gordy quit to pursue songwriting full time. He came home to his wife and three children, excited to share the news that he was quitting a great job for a dream of songwriting. Surprisingly, I know he was kicked out. 
Not for long, but uh, that's when he left for his sister's house and wrote the song To Be Loved by Jackie Wilson, who eventually performed it. And uh, that was one of the first big hits he wrote. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. I was listening to a, an interview he had with uh, BBC, and they were like, oh, so what did your wife say when, uh, when you went home and told her that you were quitting your job to become a songwriting? He said two words, get out. <laughs> At least she didn't say get the F out. Yeah, true. You know, I mean... Uh, it's, it's levels Maybe she of this. did, but I don't think the BBC would allow that. No, probably not. But anyway, um, due to his, you know, everybody that ends up being legendary has a mix of, you know, good skill and a little bit of good luck. And this good luck came here when um, his father's family friend was this man named Al Green. No relation to Reverend Al Green, a famous oh, soul excited. artist from the... No staying together. Um, but he ended up... Through his friend, family friend Al Green, he would go to this place called the Flame Show Bar, which is also kind of in the Midtown area, what is modern-day Midtown. It's kind of where the hospital is now in Midtown, um, near Harper Hospital. It was on 4264 John R., for those who want to look up the addresses. The address, But uh, he met this guy, Jackie Wilson, who was you know, an up-and-coming artist at the Flame Show Bar. And, um, you know, they really hit it off and he ended up writing a bunch of songs for Jackie Wilson. And, you know, Jackie Wilson became a very famous artist of that era. And, you know, through Jackie Wilson, he ended up meeting and writing for Etta James, Smokey Robinson, and the Miracles. I mean, this is where his career really got off to a start, and he was starting to get recognized, at least in the circles that he was in, as a great songwriter. And at the behest of Miracles frontman, the aforementioned Smokey Robinson, Barry Gordy used the proceeds from songwriting and producing music, as well as a grant from Family Trust, Bear Berry Co-op, run by his sister Esther, to start his own record label, Tamla Records. This was 1959. Once again, he talked about skill, not so much skill, and a stroke of good luck. It's right. Not too bad that his sister had a, a trust fund that he could he could draw from. Right, and when the first actual musicians you write music for are Smokey Robinson, Etta James, and Jackie Wilson, like, I, I, You're in I, a good spot. I don't have the numbers for this, I'm going to be honest, but I, I think if I went out randomly and met three songwriters in Detroit, as much as I love Detroit music, I don't think they would be nearly as good as any of those three. I think I saw, it was actually just yesterday, I was scrolling Netflix and I saw the uh, the cover of some Motown documentary, and I think in the description it said that Motown artists have been on the top 100 more than the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and any other of those huge classic rock bands you can think of. I mean, Motown... That doesn't surprise huge. me at all because Motown at first was just such a huge pop sensation and then because of that massive, like, churning out hits all at once then i mean mm -hmm. it just became a part of like the cultural lexicon was motown yep. music it's more of a feeling than an actual song at this point so that doesn't even surprise me but yeah he got a little bit lucky but he was a great songwriter and people realized it and people latched onto him and then he started tamla records so in 1959 when he started tamla records gordy purchased a property on west grand boulevard in detroit that would become motown's hitsville usa studio which still stands today it's a museum you can go in and look at it it's for those who don't know it's literally just a house. It's a house that they cool, built out into an amazing studio on the inside. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it on the outside, it just looks like a regular, beautiful Detroit two-family flat with blue and white paint, and it says Hitsville, USA at the front. They did, they did their, their, their part to make it distincting. Or uh, distinctive. distinctive. What's, the, what's the word? Distinctive? Or distinguished, however you want to Distinguished you gentleman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, there was a photography studio located in the back of this house, which is why they purchased that property. Uh, but it was modified into a small recording studio and annexed to the house. And the Gordys moved into the second floor living quarters. And within seven years, Motown would occupy seven additional neighboring houses, basically 
making up that entire block of West Grand Boulevard. This makes me think of like any of those movie montages about an artist that becomes extremely uh, successful, and then you just see all the records spinning and the people dancing on the radio, and it's and like, like every thirteen every thirteen to fifteen seconds, there's him like signing a mortgage yeah, on a new exactly, house. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like walk the line or something. That's what I think of when I think of Barry Gordy and Motown just popping off. Have you ever been to Hitsville? I haven't. Oh man, you gotta go. Have to take a field trip. You are. It take. I mean, gonna be honest, tickets are kind of expensive for what it is because it's this it's a house. You can only spend so much time in there. But well, at this rate, they should give us a couple tickets for free. Right. We should send them this and be like, hey, can we? You know, yep. We'll get some footage. Maybe we can go to the uh, Detroit City Distillery while we're at it. Yeah. Or maybe we go to the Detroit City Distillery, and then take stuff from the Detroit City Distillery and give it to the Hitsville people, and that's how we'll get it for free. I like the idea. Anyway, Motown had hired over 450 employees uh, throughout that next few years and uh, had a gross income of $20 million by the end of 1966. It's a lot of money in 1966. I think this is an interesting point because at least when you hear about the vibe of Motown and you hear about what it was and you see Hitsville and you even go in Hitsville as I have, like I did my due diligence for this podcast, Um <laughs> but when you go in, uh, you kind of get this feel that it was like this, like grassroots, small town, well, big city, like you know, small setup. You know what I'm saying? That's what mm-hmm. that's what that's what you think. But you got to remember, these guys were churning out number one yep. hits like yep. on a weekly basis. There's no way this was a small operation. I believe they already, even in the '60s when they had Hitsville, they had the neighboring offices. I believe they also had an office in downtown Detroit. I'm not positive. Um, but I'm pretty sure they also they had offices elsewhere, and this was a huge operation by the mid '60s. Basically, is the, is the point I'm trying to make. It was not some rinky dink f- generational songwriter writing songs out of this rundown house on the west side of Detroit. It was, it was, it was a real big it, industry, and in itself at that time. Um, in the ni- in 1960, though. Uh, they had a song, Barry Gordy and Tamla Records had a song that hit number two on the charts, uh, Shop Around by The Miracles, sung by Smokey Robinson, written by Smokey and Barry Gordy. And that was less than a year after Tamla started. And having a number two charting record less than a year after starting your record label, things were moving extremely fast for Barry Gordy. And I think something that's interesting is you'll see throughout as we go through this that he really had everything tied up and was a very good leader and was very good at direct at creative direction and artistic direction development. It's crazy that he did this with very little speed bumps because he just went into it. Mm-hmm. In 1959, he's like, I'm going to start a record label. And by 1966, they were the biggest act in music. That is insane. It's crazy. After two releases, Gordy began, began releasing music under the Motown imprint. Bad Girl by the Miracles was the first song to be released under uh, Motown Records. April 14th, 1960, Motown and Tamla officially merged. Really, that was kind of their coming out party. Like, they were a force in American music at this point. No questions asked. Over the next decade, uh, Gordy signed a lot of... not The just Beatles covered Please Mr. Postman, right? Beatles, I'm sure, I can't confirm, but they definitely covered several Motown songs. Yeah, they covered that, which... I mean, if the Let's Beatles are covering credence. your music... You're, you're, you're doing, doing something well. right, yeah. But yeah, I mean, over the next decade, Gordy signed artists that were not only popular at the time, but have become uh, icons, for lack of a better word. Um, I don't think I'm really... This is not hyperbole, though. I mean, these people he signed were were absolute icons. The Supremes, Marvin Gaye, 
The Temptations, Jimmy Ruffin, The Four Tops, Gladys Knight and the Pips, The Commodores, The Velvelettes, Martha and the Vandellas, Stevie Wonder, and can we f- forget the Jackson Five? Come on. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, he, he largely promoted these African-American artists, which was awesome. But he carefully controlled their public image, their dress, their manners, and their choreography because he wanted off the, you know, across the board appeal. He wanted them to be popular in the public eye and realized that unapologetic blackness at that time would really, it would not, it would not pull well in the mainstream. So they, you know, they all lived in Northwest Detroit in the Bagley neighborhood, which is where we're recording this podcast right now. So, you know, tied in a little bit with history, which is nice. Um, if you go down a couple blocks, there's, you know, how Stevie Wonder lived. If you go up to Outer Drive, take a right, you see the house that Marvin Gaye lived with Barry Gordy's Crazy. daughter, who they're, they're married, Oh wow. by the way, at one point. There's there's a lot of, you know, it seems like it could be a reality show because it's one of the, one of like the Temptations married the, one of his daughters. His Marvin Gaye married one of his other ones or one of his sisters or something, but... Yeah, I mean the whole the whole thing. It was just a big group of people with an assembly line type style, and you know everyone had specific tasks and specific skill sets that were utilized. I mean, you definitely could feel the hustle and grind and efficiency of the Detroit automotive industry seep into the music and the way it was produced. It's an interesting way to put it. I mean, in the late 1960s, uh, Barry Gordy decided to keep pushing forward. He established Motown Productions which was a television subsidiary which produced TV specials for Motown artists um, with Diana Ross and the Supremes, The Temptations, uh, Diana with Diana Ross, and going back to Indiana with the Jackson 5, which is, I, I remember as a kid growing up watching that, going back to Indiana. I don't. It, was, I, it used to be on YouTube, but my mom, nice. I grew up with my mom, was a, a huge Michael Jackson fan, like obsessed to the point where she you know, was pretty familiar with the Jackson Indiana's 5. Finest. Uh, discography uh, but at this point it was the late 60s early 70s things were not just changing at Motown things were changing in America um, you know a lot of countercultural movements a lot of freedom of expression movements and I think a, a natural byproduct of this time was that Barry Gordy because he wasn't ever really known as a tyrant for how buttoned up he had everything it was just he ran a strict gig really is what it was he wasn't necessarily a tyrant and in the late 60s he loosened up a little bit. Um, you know, he loosened the production rules, allowing some of the, specifically the longtime artists of Motown, to write, produce, and have more creative freedom with their material. And this re- resulted in not the most financially prosperous, but probably objectively the most fruitful creative period in all of Motown's history. Yeah, I was, um, I heard something he said, I don't remember which song, but he was talking, yeah, about how. One time, Jackie Wilson came to him. He's like, dude, I wrote this song. Like, check it out. I know you write all the songs, but I wrote this, and I, you know, I want to perform it. And he read it, and I remember him in the interview I was listening to. He was like, yeah, you know, this, this guy can write. Like, he has potential to be better than me. And it seems like that, that started a turning point of really letting him let these artists be themselves, which is pretty cool because you don't see a lot of the, the more tyrannical leaders of these sorts of big operations really letting their employees do anything. Right, so it's, it's an anomaly. When you hear about somebody yeah. writing number one hits for 10 straight years for an entire group of people, it's surprising to hear that just abruptly he would let them start writing. And I heard, I've heard in different interviews that he, you know, it was hard to get him to kind of convince him, right? I read an interview with Marvin Gaye where he was like, I begged Barry Gordy for this for years. And finally he, he was like, okay, Fine, but that's the thing is like in that interview you're saying he could see the talent in people. He knew what these people could do. So I think he just put, you know, put his faith in them. And, you know, this period, 
Yes, like I said, objectively probably the best art to come out of Motown, but also some of the most famous when you look back. Because you look back and you see the big hits for Motown from the early 60s, mid-60s, but you don't, nobody, can you name like uh, a Temptations album or can you name a Supremes album? They were very single focused. Yeah, the entire album, no. But then when you get to the late 60s, early 70s, this is when you see the evolution of, of, of Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder in particular mm-hmm. when they hit like their, their artistic peak and their magnum opus. The, in, in the stretch of 1970 to 1974, which was a very pivotal time at Motown, these were some of the albums that were released. What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye, Music of My Mind by Stevie Wonder, Talking Book by Stevie Wonder, and Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. I mean, just classics. I mean, I still listen to What's Going On and Inner Visions on a probably weekly basis, mm-hmm. and I grew up on them. Let's get it on. I mean, if you ever try, Let's to, get it try on. to bring someone back home, that's what you play, huh? Yeah, it's, these are some music that, have, that has always been well-respected and never been uncool. So it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. But uh, this was Motown's creative hype, but it was very different from earlier iterations of Motown music. Um, you can see here where artists begin to take their own form as people and artists for better or worse. Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder both started talking about, you know, What's going on is, is, is a political protest album, straight up, period. Barry Gordy would have never let that slide in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. That's crazy, you know? There's too many people dying. You know, like, it's, 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 it's just a protest album. And it's interesting, though, because as soon as they kind of came out from under the wing of Barry Gordy into their own growing up in showbiz, they were hitting creative highs and and personal lows. Both Stevie, like Stevie's Inner Visions album, while Marvin's What's Going On is a lot about what's going on in the world, Inner Visions is a lot about what's going on with Stevie. And Stevie, that album touches on addiction, love, loss. There is, there's, I mean, in, in the early 70s, Marvin Gaye had just lost like his best friend, Tammy Terrell, to cancer. He was struggling with, he was starting to develop like a pretty bad amphetamine addiction. Uh, Stevie Wonder was struggling with addictions himself, you know. I mean, at this point, all of this coupled with your record label going through changes, you're trying to figure out who you are as a person, what the hell was going on in America at that time. Like, I mean, think about the album name Inner Visions. Like, that's pretty outwardly talking about personal struggles. Right. I mean, like, I know it's it's the, the thing about Stevie Wonder, he's blind, but to call an album Inner Visions, like, clearly you're speaking on personal struggles. You're not mm-hmm. you're not trying to please the people. It's, it's something about that comes from within. Yep, and the thing is, is Barry Gordy never really got a lot of heat for not letting these guys break out and do this till later in their career because at the end of the day, he did, and really without too much fuss. And it was and, probably properly timed. And, and the thing is, is like maybe not so much Marvin because by the time Marvin you know kind of hit that early seventies patch, he was I think he was almost in his thirties already. But Stevie Wonder, when he came to to, to Motown in like the early sixties, that dude was like eleven years old. I mean, I mean, Stevie Wonder was like 20 years old in 1970, you know, like 20. I don't I don't know. I, I have my numbers wrong, but he was still super, super young when he came out with Talking Book, Inner Visions, all those all those albums. And I, although people don't realize that because he was super popular already when he was young, but he was a young kid. He was born he, in 1950. He was born in 1950. So Jeez. when Talking Book came out in 1970, what was 72? He was 22. He was 22 years old. And that was like his what? Sixth album. Something like that. Exactly. So I, I, definitely with Stevie, I think Barry did the Barry Gordy did the right thing. I'm not sure about Marvin, but 
it's all water under the bridge. And, you know, he's been asked in interviews um, more recently. He was asked about by BBC, like, did you, they asked him, quote, did you have reservations about molding these young black performers, quote unquote, acceptable to a highly prejudiced industry and audience? Barry's response was, quote, no, there are people who laugh the same. People cry the same and that he did not feel there was anything that would stop his music and musicians, especially racist. What do you think about that quote? I mean, that's important, right? Because that was kind of the overarching factor of modern culture in in 1960s Detroit. I mean, Detroit especially, it had the riots, it had... I mean, there was, like Detroit was no stranger to prejudice, being even though it was in the North. And the fact that musicians who are expressing their own personal struggles, as well as really kind of being the face of the everyday person... You know, we li- we listen to music to uh, to to let go of the shit that we're dealing with, and to have a label of pretty much exclusively black musicians who are given the creative freedom and allowed to do their thing, and the way that Barry Gordy puts it, right? He said, "No, you know, white people, black people, they laugh the same, they cry the same." Like clearly, he had this mindset where. This sucks, obviously, but you know I'm gonna let I'm gonna let my guys do their thing. I'm gonna let them be the people because they're just as much the people as as the the racists and the and the people who are kind of continuing this this racism and especially during the civil rights movement where there's so much clashing. It's almost like you said, all right, I'm gonna allow my music and my musicians to bring peace. I think it's a really important a small quote. You know, he just said no. You know, they laugh the same, they cry the same, but incredibly important with the meaning and the time that this music was coming out. This was like the early version of, of Michael Jordan saying Republicans buy sneakers too. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. But um, I think that the, my, my thought on the quote is that it's true, but not the whole truth, right? Like I think, I think he made that truth in his mind work for him. He basically went and he said, there's stuff going on in the world, a lot of bad stuff. I know I'm a, I'm a black man that grew up in Detroit. Um, clearly he's aware of racial issues as the whole thing with Joe Lewis and Max mm-hmm. Schmeling back when he was a kid that, you know, had such a large influence on him. But I think he wasn't, I think what he was trying to say with that quote, or at least what his music portrayed was not that people laugh, cry the same, but that like you're saying, people use music as escapism and not all music is escapism, but there are certain music that you want to listen to where you just want to forget about everything going on. And that's kind of what the vibe of Motown was, right? Like, love or you know sunday mornings or you know going out with your friends and just like the stuff that everybody can enjoy yeah and, mind and that's you, why i think this, he said people laugh and cry the same because it's yeah. talking about like parts of life that we can all enjoy yeah and this quote came from him as an 85 year old millionaire living in la in the in the 2010s like right take, and you know take he what has, he says with a grain of salt given where he's at now versus where he was in the late 60s early 70s but still you know it, it's 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 meaningful and clearly him and his musicians uh, expressed that like well, they showed that and the thing is is later on in motown you know i mean only this was only 12 13 years into the label they were making politically charged records and i mean it wasn't just like he was some like i don't know like cornball that didn't want to stand up for his people. I mean, he felt that Motown music was bringing a similar level of integration and peace as Martin Luther King's political speeches were. MLK even acknowledged that. Three of MLK's speeches were released on the Motown label because he wanted financial support from Gordy because he felt like they were kind of simpatico. And and honestly, I totally get that comparison. Like if Motown 
is the the music civil rights version of Martin Luther King, then like Nina Simone is Malcolm X, right? Mm-hmm. Like like the Motown is is bringing people together by peace, happiness, joy, while the unapologetically black freedom fighters were not nearly as palatable to the radio and the public eye. You weren't going to go driving around on the popular radio station hearing Nina Simone singing Strange Fruit. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to hear another Saturday night or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So I think that's a good... I mean, it's obviously way too overarching in generalization, but I honestly think that's true. Like, like MLK and Motown had a lot of similarities in the way they brought people together yeah. and their philosophies about injustice. It was peaceful and it was just... You Kill know, them with and, kindness. Yeah, and, and like you said earlier, you know, the first parts of the music, it seems like it was kind of cookie cutter, still a little bit off the beaten path, Detroit style, but not necessarily that unapologetically black performance that you, you mentioned earlier. Whereas at this point, it seems like the way MLK approached civil rights was kill them with kindness, was peaceful protesting, was do your thing, do it well, and show everybody in the world that you know you are just as valuable as, as anyone else. And it seems like even with that small answer that Barry Gordy gave where he said, no, you know, I didn't feel worried about molding a bunch of black artists during this crazy time. You know, it shows like, he's like, this is the thing, like, do your thing, do it well, you know, represent yourself really well and show that you are talented and, and, and people will latch onto it. And it's, it's crazy. I mean, the fact that Barry Gordy actually bankrolled MLK Three of the speeches, including the I Have a Dream, the great March on Washington speech, like that's released under Motown. Yep. Like they were close and they were, you know, he, Barry Gordy supported them financially because he was killing it. But at the same time, like he didn't have to. He, he was, you know, there was, right. there was a, there has to have been a true friendship there. And or some, least, or some philosophic similarities. Yeah, exactly. Some sort of awareness um, and, and understanding that we're both doing things. Differently, but kind of toward the same end goal. I think that story about MLK and Barry Gordy being friends and and partners in peace is really cool. I think it was Jesse Jackson who um, introduced them. Of course it was. Yeah. The guy's everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) All good things got to come to an end, though, and these companies are not are not uh, immune to money issues and. in the early 70s, in the late 60s, Motown had established branches in New York City and Los Angeles um, for radio and TV and movies. But they had begun around the turn of the decade to gradually move more and more of their operations to L.A. And in, in June 1972, they officially moved all their operations to Los Angeles. And they've always said that it was because of the the opportunities there in the movie industry and being closer to the action, which I understand. But you got to think that it's not really a coincidence that it happened at that time, right? Like as mm-hmm. soon as Detroit went into, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, like Detroit was, had been on a long time coming. The downturn was coming. People just didn't see it coming. But the late sixties, I mean the 67 riots, the, the white flight in the early seventies, like this all, I think it all Thanks, plays. Kobo. Right. I think, I think it all plays into why Motown left. And I don't necessarily fault them for it, but it's hard for me to believe with what Motown meant as a culture and what it meant to the city that they still wouldn't be in Detroit if Detroit never fell off for a time. Yep. I think they would still be here. At least have an office. They don't even have an office here. To this not, day, there's not a single office here. There's not a Motown office. Wow. If there is, if you're a listener and you like work at a Motown office or in Detroit or something, please let me know. 
because I've never heard of that. By relocating, uh, Motown aimed chiefly to branch out into the motion picture industry, and Motown Productions got its start in film by turning out two hits for Diana Ross, who was like the new golden child of uh, of Motown. Um, the Billie Holiday biographical film, Lady Sings the Blues, and the film Mahogany. At this time, a lot of artists actually stayed in Detroit because they felt some sort of kinship with Detroit, or they just left Motown due to some label disputes. So while artists like Diana Ross or, or, or maybe Marvin Gaye um, were thriving at this point uh, with Motown, not everybody was. I think this this moving to L.A. was a, did a disservice to the smaller acts of Motown and was a huge help to the bigger acts that were superstars. Um, but do you have any guesses what the last album that was recorded at Hitsville was? Well, I'm reading it on my computer screen here, but I'm going to let you tell me. Yeah, you know what? I would like to also say that I am really mad at the FCC because I really want to just play a clip right now of the song, but that'll get that'll for sure get our podcast taken down. So the mm-hmm. song is what's going or the album is what's going on by Marvin Gaye. Uh that was the last album. What an which is one of my favorite albums of all time. And I would just suggest what a way to end. Just go read about it as sometime, just the album and the and the creation of the album. It's just super interesting. Um a lot of weird stuff was going on at this time. Marvin Gaye was really close friends with uh, Lions player, and he was decided he was going to try out for the Lions. The bass player would come into the studio so drunk they had to get a new bass player, but he actually, the only song he managed to stay uh, conscious for the bass line of is What's Going On, which is like one of the most <laughs> famous bass lines of all time. Wow. So just listen to that song, knowing that like the, the dude that was on the fucking upright bass could barely stand up straight. That's hilarious. Yeah. I had no idea about yeah, that. Yeah, crazy. Uh, while Motown began their run in L.A., still being one of the prominent labels in music, they eventually hit a decline, although Motown continued to produce major hits through the 70s and 80s by new artists, including the Jacksons, superstar potential Rick James, the Commodores, Lionel Richie, and you know Stevie Wonder and Smokey Robinson still going strong. Uh, the record company just wasn't the force that it once had been, and Gordy sold his interest in Motown Records to MCA and Boston Ventures on June 28, 1988, for $61 million. Um, in 1988, Barry Gordy was inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and first ballot, and when Gordy received the Songwriters Hall of Fame Pioneer Award on June 13, 2013, he was the first living individual to ever receive the honor. Wow. Just crazy. What's the one of the craziest things about Barry Gordy though is that he is still alive. He outlasted so many of his peers in the industry. So many peers like Aretha or you know people that were famous in music at the time, or people that were younger than him, like Marvin Gaye or you know, Tammy Terrell, who I mentioned earlier. So many of these Motown artists are no longer with us. While the guy that brought them to the forefront of pop music. Still alive and kicking. Not only is he still alive, but he's actually, as recent as like three, four years ago, has been super active as the creative director of Motown. Still. He, uh, I don't know if you know about the the Motown Broadway show that was going a few years ago. He wrote that. Oh, wow. Created it. He created the whole show. And uh, there's a docuseries about Motown that I didn't know about. A Showtime docuseries Mm -hmm. from 2018 that he created as well. What's it called? I don't know. Okay. Maybe that was what I was just talking about earlier. Lost in the Shadows of Motown, I think it's called. Either way, I'm going to watch that. Probably should have done my homework and watched yeah, it prior. Yeah, well, hey, you know. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Um, but then in 2019, at the uh, Motown 60th anniversary gala, he announced that he was stepping down from his position and out of the public eye at the uh, ripe age of, of 90 years old. So 
or 89, I suppose. But uh, he's, you know, he's a workhorse. He's always been, uh, you know, focused on pushing Motown forward. And really, like, he said this earlier in his career, but um, he said he would he envisioned a process when he started where, quote, a kid could walk in one door, unknown off the street, and come out a polished performer, unquote. And that was, you know, influenced by his work on the assembly lines and the efficient production style. And I, I think that has just bled through all of his life's work. Absolutely. And that was I think, a good recap. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think that Barry Gordy needs to be talked about in a specific way because he's not necessarily like the biggest activist, like we're saying of all time, but he did his part. He believed in the right things. He was an icon for not just young black people in Detroit, but young black people everywhere. If these like, imagine these young black kids seeing, you know, Diana Ross and Martha Reeves and, and Stevie wonder performing on these national nationally syndicated programs in the 1960s when everything was going on. That is important enough in itself. Not to mention he stayed around for so long, stayed with Motown. Just two years ago in 2019, he gave a $4 million donation to Hitsville, the museum. And now they're like adding, like they're like tripling the size of the museum with expansion. Like just off of the founder's $4 million donation. How crazy is that? It's awesome. I mean, yeah, clearly he built a legacy, right? That's what our whole podcast is about, is the, the legacy a certain Detroit character leaves on the city. And his legacy is, is bar none, one of the biggest in, you know, U.S. music history. If you hear the word Motown, who comes to mind? Barry. Barry Gordy. Gordy. And every single one of the artists that were under him just phenomenally famous and successful because of something he built. Well, I you just think about it like from the 60s you hear about all these people that were changed the p- way people thought about music, right? Like Velvet Underground introducing punk music to the the masses or Phil Spector's Wall of Sound or whatever mm-hmm. with the rec- studio recordings and they all had felt like they had these one like essential contribution to music across the board. But Barry Gordy just the, the the clip and the efficiency at which he just churned out hits. Like, I don't think people... Re- people knew that he was a great entrepreneur and he had a great, you know, creative direction and where he wanted to take the brand and where he wanted to take that movement. But I don't think people give him enough credit for just being an incredible songwriter. Well, like, it's, as, it's as a, purely a songwriter, he wrote more hits than almost anybody else I, I can think of. It's, it's amazing. I mean, yeah, just before, you know, when I was super young, I used to go visit my grandparents all the time. And the playlist they would always have was, you know, pretty much all Motown artists. And I had no idea that all of this music was coming out of Detroit. It was, they were just hits, timeless hits that I loved to listen to. And now, you know, I think of my grandparents when I listen to it. And now I learn about this and I, th- I think about how incredibly influential and and important this kind of music was and the way uh barry gordy's timeline and motown's timeline goes it it seems like you know at those points in history which you and i were not even a thought at this point they were incredibly important to what was happening it's it's a it's a cool story um and if you think about it like how much how many things has motown soundtracked from that era, right? Like so many people's childhoods. Yep. So many movie scores. Mm-hmm. So many. You hear that Motown. You hear anything that sounds remotely like Motown, and you know what I'm saying. Yep. As a, as a listener, yep. 
You know what I'm saying if it sounds like Motown. And, and if ha- you don't, go listen to some Motown music. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say we'll do a special Lost Souls of Detroit playlist, but there's like a billion Motown playlists out there. So maybe just, we could maybe we could do in the next couple episodes on some Motown artists themselves. We could, we could, we'll we'll do that. We'll we do rapid fire a couple. We'll rapid couple fire a couple. I mean, couple no, half lengths. Not gonna do some. I think we got to do like we'll do a preview. Like you know, got to do Smokey, got to do Stevie, got to do Aretha, got to do Marvin, and I really want to do David Ruffin. But um, as great as uh, Barry Gordy's history and legacy is. There is something pretty funny we have to we have to talk about. Oh my goodness! There, so Barry Gordy was married uh, and divorced three times, correct? M- yes, married and divorced three times, as well as some kids with with. So his he he had a, one funny thing is that he had a few kids. They were named like I don't know if you, you can tell me if I remember I like Carrie, Sherry, here. Barry, Terry. So he has Barry the fourth, <laughs> Carrie, Sherry, and Terry, and Terry. Yeah. Well, but that's in not no the, particular order. But that's not the funny part. The though. best part is his youngest child, his youngest son. You look at, on, you know, on you look up about Barry Gordy. You're like, oh, he has a son born in 1975 named Stefan Kendall Gordy. Wait, it's linked. What happens when you click on the link? Where does that Stefan Kendall Gordy page bring you to? Redfoo. Now, if you're asking, you're either cracking the hell up already, or you're asking, who is Redfoo? If you're our age. This man made your middle school dances. Yes. Red Foo and his nephew, who is also blood-related to Barry Gordy. Who knew? Sky Blue, I think is his name. I don't know. They made up the the duo LMFAO, which was like one of the biggest cookie-cutter pop acts of the the early 2010s, late 2000s. And when I learned that Barry Gordy's youngest son was Red Foo... That blew my top. It literally blew my top. I yeah, cannot so believe Redfoo it. Redfoo is Sky Blue's uncle. Right, because one of Barry Gordy's oldest children, actually his oldest son, Barry Gordy IV, had a son named Skylar Austin Gordy. That is Sky Blue. And then mm-hmm. with his third, or no, wow, okay, so it was like, I don't even know if it was his wife. It was some uh, woman later in life he had a child with, and that was Red Foo. So Red Foo is Sky Blue's uncle. And another interesting child he has is with Diana Ross. He had a child with Diana Ross who was married or in a relationship with Robert Silberstein at the time, who was a uh, Detroit music executive. And Barry Gordy and Diana Ross had a child, which Robert... Silberstein adopted as his own. So just a lot of a lot of interesting things. And it just goes to show that And that Robert Silberstein and Diana Ross, they had a pretty famous child together. Did they? Tracy Ellis Ross. Uh yeah, your favorite. My favorite. Anybody Tracy who Ellis knows Ross, if you're listening. Tracy Ellis Ross, if you're James listening, I would change my life for you. He would. Anyways, uh thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> Have a great day. Have a great day. Especially you, Tracy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Lost Souls of Detroit. Please follow us on social media. Our Instagram is Lost Souls of Detroit, and our Twitter is Souls Detroit. Now, don't forget to subscribe to us on your preferred streaming platform, and if you are using Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars. As a growing podcast, this helps us tremendously and will allow us to keep it going. Don't be afraid to hit us up on social media with requests on a soul you want us to discuss or a spirit you recommend that we drink. 